please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Perhaps we could read the psalm together. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And now we'll turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22, at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is a great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Amen. And may God bless to us that further reading from his word. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the timelessness of your word. The passage we'll be looking at this evening was scripture for Jesus, and it is scripture for us. It is still relevant to us in the 21st century. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and enlighten us to understand your word, to understand your truth, and to respond appropriately. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn back then to Psalm 110. I think you'll find it helpful to have the, the psalm open as we look at it together. 
I think I was 10 or 11 when I was given the book as a Sunday school prize. I read it, but I didn't enjoy it. Quite honestly, I didn't like it at all. But just a few weeks ago, I read the book again. And this time, it was a very different experience. I appreciated the clarity of the writing. I got into the story. I saw that it was actually more than just a story. So now I can appreciate why people like C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. This psalm is a bit like that. It's possible to read it and not make much of it at all, but it's actually one of the Old Testament passages cited most often in the New Testament. That must mean that God has some very important things to teach us through this passage. There must be things in this psalm which it's all too easy to miss on a casual reading. In the passage we read from Matthew's Gospel, we saw how the Pharisees tried to put Jesus on the spot. He then asks them a question. He asks them about the ancestry of the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the great figure spoken about in the Old Testament Scriptures whose coming the Jews were eagerly awaiting. Jesus' question is straightforward enough. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees think the answer is obvious, and they confidently assert that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. He will be the descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. The Pharisees have answered correctly. But then Jesus puts them on the spot by asking a supplementary question. It's always worth being careful when supplementary questions are asked. Jesus quotes the opening words of this psalm, which both he and the Pharisees assume refers to the Messiah. And he asks, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the Pharisees have no answer to that. It's worth noting in passing that Jesus clearly accepts that this psalm was written by David. Not only that, he says that David wrote these words in the Spirit. David penned the words of this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is divinely inspired prophecy. And it's a prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus treats the my Lord of verse 1 as referring to the Messiah. And it's clear that the Pharisees don't have a problem with that. They too believe the psalm is about the Messiah. So much is common ground between them. Here's a psalm written by David, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and pointing forward to the Messiah. 
What then does this psalm have to tell us about the Messiah? I'd like to highlight three main things. First, the Messiah is David's Lord. Secondly, he's a victorious king. And thirdly, he's an eternal priest. First of all then, the Messiah is David's Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The subject of the opening sentence of the psalm is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters in our English Bibles, it stands for the personal name of God, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The eternally self-existent God. The God who's unchanging, not least in his commitment to his people. But the my Lord of verse 1 is a different Hebrew word, which could simply mean master or sovereign. Even if that's all it means, it's still remarkable that David refers to one of his descendants as my Lord. Shouldn't it be the other way around? In Jewish culture, ancestors were more important than descendants. That's the point of Jesus' supplementary question to the Pharisees. If then David calls the Messiah, Lord, how is he his son? Jesus isn't questioning the Messiah's lineage as a descendant of David. Instead, he's challenging the Pharisees to think through how the Messiah can be a mere human descendant of King David. He wants the Pharisees to see that the Messiah must be more. He has to be great David's greater son. But just how much greater? By calling him my Lord, does David simply mean that the Messiah will have greater power, authority and prestige than he himself ever had? Well, if you take the psalm as a whole, I think David means much, much more. The evidence points to the Messiah's being divine. For a start, he's invited to sit at God's right hand. He's invited to sit in the place of honor at Yahweh's side. His position couldn't possibly be more exalted. And it's Yahweh himself in verse 3 who sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. Yahweh and the Messiah act in concert. The Lord wields a scepter and the Messiah rules. Then in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Scholars say the form of the Hebrew word for Lord used here is reserved exclusively for deity. In verse 1, the Messiah is at God's right hand. Here it's God who's at the Messiah's right hand. It's as if their positions are interchangeable. And in the following verses, there's some ambiguity as to who the he who's the subject of these verses is. Is it the Lord? Or is it the Messiah? Or do they act as one? It's hard to escape the conclusion 
that the Messiah shares Yahweh's deity. He is no less than God. He is son of God as well as son of David. In the New Testament, we see how in his miracles, Jesus demonstrated his, demonstrated his lordship over the forces of nature, over wind and waves, over disease, and even over death. He exercised the prerogatives of deity by, for example, forgiving sin. He made the most stupendous claims. I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And after dying on the cross, he rose again on the third day and proved that death could not hold him. Remember how even doubting Thomas, when confronted with the risen Jesus, had to say, My Lord! And my God, as Christians, we believe that Jesus was God. He was fully human, but he was also fully divine. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but was also declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. There is clear witness to Jesus' deity in the New Testament, but it's also prophesied in the Old Testament. In the light of such evidence, we believe that in the person of Jesus, God came into our world in human form. If you want to see God, look at Jesus The Messiah is David's Lord. My question for you and for me this evening is this. The Messiah is David's Lord, but is he your Lord? Secondly, the Messiah is a victorious king. The psalm pictures the Messiah as enthroned at God's right hand until all his enemies are vanquished. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's not that the Messiah will have no enemies. He will. His rule will be contested. In the words of verse 3, he will rule in the midst of his enemies. But those who oppose him will be defeated. Kings who oppose him will be shattered, verse 5. And he will establish global supremacy. The arena of his rule will be the nations, verse 6, and the wide earth, verse 7. Verse 6b. The Gentile nations, indeed the whole world, will submit to this mighty king. The language is graphic. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. One day the Messiah's enemies will be fully and finally defeated. They will be made his footstool. Final victory is assured. Why is that? Well, it's because he enjoys the authority 
and the resources of Almighty God. He is the God-appointed king. The Lord has decreed that he will be king. And he has decreed that his enemies will be defeated. God's will cannot be frustrated. And God is with him in all he does. He is at his right hand. The Messiah will not have to give up because it all becomes just too much. I think that's what verse 7 is saying. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The picture is of a warrior pursuing his enemies as they flee from the battlefield. The chase is tiring. But all the warrior needs to renew his strength is to pause briefly to take a refreshing drink from a stream. He then presses on to complete the route. But as well as defeating his enemies, the Messiah rallies willing volunteers to his standard. The meaning of verses 3 and 4 is somewhat unclear. The ESV suggests, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. In the words of one commentator, the general picture emerges of a host of volunteers rallying to their leader in a holy war. The Messiah goes forth at the head of a great host in youthful vigor, in holiness, and in glory. He has willing followers who gladly recognize his authority and yield him obedience and allegiance. The psalm then speaks of a king appointed by God who will exercise universal sovereignty, a king whose sway will extend from Zion, from Jerusalem, to the very ends of the earth, a king who will command an army of willing volunteers and who will eventually subdue all his enemies. How can we apply these things to Jesus well for a start it reminds us that Jesus is king he was crowned king when he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the apostle Paul tells the Christians at Ephesus that the father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's where Jesus is this evening. He's in the position of ultimate power and authority. He is king. And as king, he's in the business of gathering a people to himself. He turns enemies into friends, as in his grace he brings men and women, boys and girls, to recognize his authority and enlist in his army. Isn't it amazing how the church has spread all over the world? The gospel has gone to the very ends of the earth, and today it flourishes in some unexpected places. I read somewhere recently that today in China there are more Christians meeting for worship than in the whole of Western Europe put together. Jesus is King and the Lord has sent forth his mighty scepter from Zion. 
Yes, his rule is still contested. He's still in the business of subduing those who refuse to acknowledge his kingship and make their peace with him. How does he do that? The language of this psalm is strong. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. But isn't Jesus loving and gentle and kind? Yes, he is all of these things. And at present he exercises a great deal of patience and forbearance. If that were not the case, where would any of us be? But even now Jesus restrains those who are his implacable enemies and acts decisively against them as he sees fit. At times we might wish that he would do so more obviously. Often we can't understand why those who oppose him and his people appear to get away with it. But Jesus is in control. For all its turmoil, our world is under the sovereign control of King Jesus. We need to remember that. And one day all his enemies will be fully and finally defeated. The call of the gospel is to flee from the wrath to come. I think we sometimes forget that. In the book of Revelation, we read these words. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? As Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This psalm reminds us too that we also are in a war. We don't take up arms against physical foes. We're engaged in a spiritual war. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're fighting against the pressures of a society which is increasingly anti-God. We're fighting against the downdrag of our own sinful natures and against a devil who goes about like a roaring lion. That's why we need to put on the whole armor of God. Nowadays, many Christians are uncomfortable with that kind of emphasis. We tend to focus more on the softer aspects of Christian witness. We play down what a previous generation would have called muscular Christianity. And yet we are in a war. If we are Christians, we are enlisted 
in the army of King Jesus. And there's something else. Because Jesus is king, the gospel invitation to acknowledge his authority and trust in him has to be taken seriously. In a very real sense, the call of the gospel is a summons from the throne room of heaven to lay down our arms, to turn from our rebellious ways and submit to the authority of the king. It's a summons we ignore at our peril. The Apostle Paul again, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Have you heeded that command? Because it's nothing less than a command. That command to repent. Is your response to King Jesus one of compliance or one of defiance? Either we submit willingly to the king now or we fall under his judgment then on the day of his wrath. Because make no mistake, the Messiah is a victorious king. The Messiah is David's Lord. The Messiah is a victorious king. Thirdly and finally, the Messiah is an eternal priest. We learn that in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is very odd because in the Old Testament the roles of king and priest were kept separate. No king could be a priest and no priest could be a king. But here we have a king who is also a priest and he's no ordinary priest. He's not a member of the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that was set up under the law of Moses. No, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? He's a shadowy character we read about in Genesis chapter 14. Most unusually, he too was a priest as well as a king. He was king of Salem, quite possibly the place which later came to be known as Jerusalem. And he was also a priest of God Most High. When the patriarch Abram was returning from the defeat of his enemies in battle, Melchizedek came out to greet him and pronounced a blessing on him. He appears as if from nowhere and then disappears again. In the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews says of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Does this mean that Melchizedek was some kind of supernatural being? Probably not. I think what the writer of the Hebrews means is that we know nothing about Melchizedek's antecedents and we know nothing about what happened to him later on. 
And because we know nothing about what happened to him, it's as if his priesthood goes on and on. The writer to the Hebrews says that Melchizedek continues a priest forever. Here in Psalm 110, we're told that by God's oath, the Messiah is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So why is this important? Well, what does a priest do? A priest acts as a go-between between men and women and God. And in particular, a priest offers sacrifices by which sin may be atoned for. That's what Jesus did in dying on the cross. He offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. God couldn't simply ignore sin. He couldn't simply sweep it under the carpet. The penalty of sin had to be paid. And the amazing thing is that in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, God took that penalty upon himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus became man, assumed our sin, and suffered its punishment so that guilty sinners might go free. He suffered the just for the unjust to bring us to God. In what Martin Luther called the great exchange, he took our sin, and in return we receive his righteousness. The sacrifices which the Levitical priests offered time after time couldn't themselves atone for sin. They simply pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice, to that sacrifice which would deal effectively with sin once and for all. That's why Jesus' priesthood is a better priesthood, a superior priesthood, an effective priesthood. And that's why his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. There's no need for any more priests now that he has offered the one great sacrifice for sin for all time. It's on the basis of his atoning death that Jesus makes enemies into friends. That's how he can recruit into his army those who previously were opposed to his rule. The sin which alienated us from God has been dealt with. All we need to do is to accept what Jesus has done on our behalf. The Messiah is an eternal priest. It took me a long time to reread The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and come to appreciate its merits. I hope that our brief study of this psalm this evening has given each one of us a deeper appreciation of the Messiah of whom it speaks. The Messiah is David's Lord. In Jesus, we see God in human form. The Messiah is a victorious king. 
Jesus is enthroned at God's right hand. Even now he is in the position of absolute power. And one day all his enemies will submit to him. The Messiah is an eternal priest. Because he died in the place of sinners like us, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came in fulfillment of prophecy. We thank you that he was God in human form. That in his role as priest he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. We thank you that now he is king. We thank you for the confidence that gives us that our world is ultimately under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you too that one day all his enemies will be made his footstool. We pray that we may avail ourselves of the salvation which he offers. May we, each one of us, flee from the wrath to come. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.